We are currently in a series here uh, in the summer entitled Reflections in the Psalms. And this is the third psalm that we're working through and uh, teaching, teaching through uh, in this uh, summer series. Uh, psalm 1 was our, our first psalm we took a look at two weeks ago with Pastor Gling. And last week we spent some time there with uh, one of uh, the fellow elders, uh, Joey Hutchinson, who preached on Psalm 27. Today I'm going to walk us through Psalm 15. So if you can turn there uh, in your Bibles, I'm not going to put it on screen. And uh, then we can read it together and unpack this this morning. This is a Psalm of David. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Let us just pray before we get started. Father, we thank you once again. Lord, as we had sung this morning, you are holy, you are great, you are compassionate, you are kind, you are slow to anger, you are abounding in steadfast love. And, and Father, we come to you as your children, knowing that you are, you are our God and uh, that we can approach you because you are everything that we had just mentioned. So, because of your grace, we approach you this morning, and we come and ask, by your Spirit, come and help us, come and lead us. Uh, Lord, come and help me. Uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, Lord, be in line with your will, your kingdom, your glory this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. I'm sure many of you would agree with me, and others might not, but uh, I believe one of the greatest, if not perhaps the, the greatest invention in the history of mankind uh, must be the internet. You could say whatever you want about the internet, all the, the good and all the bad that comes with it, but I got to tell you, uh, if it wasn't perhaps for the internet, you know, Many people might not have met their spouse. And uh, if it wasn't for the internet in my situation, um, maybe my spouse and I, my wife and I, might not have gotten married as well. Um, what happened with us was uh, Jean and I met each other when we were 19, first year at university. Uh, we dated for four to five years, and then I finished my teaching degree. And after that, I decided I was going to 
go and travel abroad. I was going to live in the UK, in London, England, for a year to um, earn some money to pay back my study debt. Now, in that year, it was 2006, May of 2006, I had a radical encounter with Jesus. I would say before that, I grew up very culturally Christian. I was a nominal Christian. Uh, now and then I would go to church. I had belief in Jesus, but it wasn't uh, faith in Jesus that was calling me to obedience. I, I really wasn't in a place of walking with God's people that dis- discipled me. And so when I went on this journey to London, England, it was a a step in faith to also make my faith my own. But it was a challenge for us in our relationship because Jean still had to carry on uh, completing her um, school of medicine to become a doctor. And so she was quite nervous about this endeavor of mine. And quite rightly, because within the first three months that I was there of 2006, I could feel that as a result of this physical distance that we were apart from one another, that there are, in certain aspects, we are growing kind of like in different ways, growing apart. We did our very best to communicate um, periodically, daily, through text messages. Uh, and also at that stage, you know, do you remember the old ancient phone booth? Yeah, you don't see many of those around anymore. Uh, she had a phone booth that was in her dorm, and then we would have to make an appointment that she would be at her phone booth a sp- specific day, a, a time of the day, and I would phone her, and then we would be able to chat. But it was very frustrating. You could chat for 10 minutes, and then you would hear, boop, 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 boop. And that would be an indication to you that your time was up, and she would have to put the phone down. I would have to call back. And it was, it was challenging because sometimes it just there were disconnections. But then, of course, there was the Internet, And the amazing development of internet cafes. How many of you remember those things? (laughs) Ancient things, right? Uh, Internet cafes. And you had chat rooms. And then, of course, at that stage, you had the new technology of Skype. And so Jean and I were also able in 2006, and this was during this period of time where social media exploded through MySpace. How many of you remember that one? MySpace and then... That didn't work, and then Facebook dominated social media. But through Skype, John and I were able to see each other's faces and communicate, talk to one another. But it it still added some frustration because there were some connections, again, that weren't great. Uh, uh, Her money would run out that, you know, she's paying to be on the Internet for for a specific period of time, and, and she would have to go to the person who's running the Internet cafe. It's just all kinds of logistics that... Today, with phones and FaceTime, it's like it's not the same unless your Wi-Fi connection is really bad. But after three months that I was in England, something changed because Jean came and she visited me physically in England, in London. And she will admit this, the first week was pretty weird. <laughs> we were like, oh yeah, now we're physically back together again and, you know, you just felt like, yeah, there are some doubts. Oh, you know, is this going to work? Where is this going? And then, just miraculously, for the rest of the time that she was with me, we traveled through Europe, we caught up. And it was amazing. And then when I said goodbye to her at uh, Gatwick Airport in, in London, um, she went through security, and I, I said bye-bye, gave her a... Uh, hug and a kiss, 
And then I went into the washroom and I cried. I bawled my eyes out. But I made a promise there. I said, Lord, thank you that she was here physically present with me. I'm making a promise that I'm going to stay faithful to her. And I know I'm going to marry her. If, if it's your will, I'm going to marry her, but I want to marry her. And so I stuck with that promise. Um, a year after that, the two of us got engaged. And then after that year of engagement, we did get married. Now, I share that with you because uh, this is going to relate to the psalm here today, but also my title for today's message, if you could throw that up there, uh, Lydia, is the present of his presence. Because this psalm is talking about God's presence. It's all about asking the question, who is able, Lord, to stand in your presence, to be physically with you, to have you with them? If you look at the first verse there, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain, that question is a question of presence. When it says there is sacred tent, in other translations, older translations, that literal tent that David is talking about is the tabernacle. Now, I'm going to throw an image up there for you. If you don't know what we're talking about when we're mentioning the tabernacle, that's what the tabernacle kind of like looked like, according to the, the descriptions that we find in the Bible, mainly in Leviticus. And so what the tabernacle was is it was a sacred tent that God instructed the Israelites to build according to specific measurements, specifications, very specific materials. And the nation of Israel, after having been set free from being in slavery in Egypt, they were commanded to then travel through the desert towards the promised land of, of Canaan. And then around that sacred tent where it was set up, the different tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes, would have to camp. Um. Lydia, you can take that off. Now, the, the tabernacle, of course, then was not just symbolic, but it was where God's physical, tangible presence came to be amongst these people. And so it, it painted this picture of God wanting to be at the center of his people. His people uh, uh, were all around him. But during the week, and specific points in the year and times, God would physically come and manifest His presence as people would bring sacrifices, as the priests would then have to slaughter animals and use that blood to atone for the sins of the people. But it was all about presence. It was all about a, a way for God's people to come near to Him because He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. And so when, when King David asks that question, who is it that is able to dwell in your tent and live on your holy mountain? He's referring to those 
situations where God is physically present, where God is talking with his people. Uh, when he's talking about a holy mountain, he is, again, referring to the fact that it's on Mount Sinai, at, at Mount Horeb, that he revealed his glory to Moses, gave his law. And then, of course, on the holy mountain or place of Jerusalem, made that the center of where God's presence was going to be. So it's a question of presence. Who can enjoy God's goodness, His glory, His presence? And then the rest of the psalm, the, the next four verses then gives kind of like requirements. These are the qualifications. This is what's required of you if you want to be in God's presence. So let's unpack that. I'm just going to take a sip of water. Verse 2, the one, remember that, the one, whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. Verse 3, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor. And casts no slur on others. I'm going to get back to verse 2 at the end. And there's a purpose behind that. I'm going to first turn our attention to verse 3. It is at the center of this psalm. You will see that a big theme in the psalm is, of course, words. What you say. Yes, there are deeds. But there's a big focus on Words And in verse 3, there is this emphasis on a tongue that utters no slander, not doing wrong to a neighbor, casting no slur on others. We live in such a, a time that slander is very easy to be involved with, it's very easy to do. But not all people understand what slander is and not all people understand what the purpose behind it is. Um, we are now in 2023. It's already starting south of the border because what happens south of the border next year, 2024? Election. Elections, right? Okay, so we are used to slander. We know all about it. We see it happen in the culture. We see it in the political realms. What happens? You've got political candidates, you've got people running for office, they're running for uh, president, and so what does their opponent do? Come up with all kinds of dirt and stories and things that all of a sudden are revealed. Some of it might be true, but then I would suggest to you the majority of the time, many, much of that is slander. It is falsified information to do what? To make your opponent look weak, and also to make their opponent seem untrustworthy. You cannot trust that other person. You cannot trust this guy who's running against me for president, okay? So we see that. that is, uh, slander is basically that. It is a lie. It is falsified information, and it's, it's maybe as a result of something that was said by a person, a community, or an institution, uh, an event, something that happened, and a person or another group of people take what happened and they 
They construe it, they change it, and they twist it, and then bring it again into the light, into the public sphere, in order to make that person or community or institution untrustworthy or seem untrustworthy. That is exactly what it is. And it has one purpose. It is to discredit whoever that person is that's being slandered against or that community or that institution. Okay? To make people doubt whether or not they can be trusted. Who slanders? Uh, if we look at the history of, of the church... We see that you get slander that is against the church. You get slander that is against Christians. Uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ experienced slander. He was falsely accused on many occasions. Uh, but Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I believe in verse 11, he said, listen, blessed are you when you are persecuted and when there are all kinds of falsehoods, there are evil things said about you. In other words, when you are slandered as, as, as a result of my name. So Jesus gives a warning that he says, if you're a Christian, if you truly follow me and you understand what I'm teaching and you follow me, you will experience this as a Christian. We see that happen in the early church. You see that happen in the book of Acts. You see the early disciples experiencing um, slander as a form of persecution. In the early church in the Roman Empire, there was... Slander that happened as a result of the Christian practices. Slander or rumors that went about about Christians were that they were atheists. They didn't believe in God because, well, in the Roman world, they were a plethora of gods. It was polytheistic. Many gods that you had to sacrifice to and worship. And so when Christians came along and they only worshiped one god, the Romans said, listen, this is weird. They must be atheists. Like, there's no such thing as only one God. So we see in the early church that kind of slander happening. They were also regarded as people who committed incest. So incestuous. Why? We call each other brothers and sisters. And we have one God who's our father. <laughs> so they listened to that and they concluded, this sounds like incest. And so that rumor started going in the kingdom of Rome. And then there was also the slander of that they were cannibals. Yeah, cannibals, okay? Right? Guess why, where that came from? Because they had communion and you eat the body of Christ and you drink the blood of Christ. Okay, but that's now, seriously, some of the slander that went about. And people thought that Christians were untrustworthy. And then, of course, came their moral ethic when it comes to sexual uh, morality. And all of the ways that they lived their lives that became scandalous in the Roman Empire for which they were then persecuted. Okay? These are all ways in which slander is happening from outside the church against Christians. Okay? These days, there are various forms of slander that can happen. You might be called very narrow-minded for believing that Jesus is the only way to salvation. You might be called uh, an extreme fundamentalist because you believe the Bible is the word of God. You might be called and slandered as being anti-scientific because you believe, well, it is God who had created everything. And you might and will most probably be called a bigot and hateful as a result of your view 
that God is the one who created us male and female. He is the one who decided what is sexuality? What does that look like? How does that, how do we live that out as male and female? And those are the ways that we experience slander from outside the church. But in this context, it is about your neighbor. That Hebrew word there is referring to a fellow Israelite, a fellow believer in Yahweh. David is talking about slander and not doing wrong to a neighbor by casting slurs. So in other words, in the church, in and amongst God's people. Does that happen? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And the question is, what is God's view of that? He is not pleased with that. God does not delight when his children are slandering one another. If there's anything that ticks me off the most between my two kids, and they're still young, Miriam is five, Daniel is three, is when one of them is lying about what the other person did. Daddy, this is Daniel, he hit me. You know, whatever it is. And then it's, you know, and I, I saw what exactly happened. And it's like, okay, Miriam, is this really what happened? Is, is, are you telling me the truth? But if there is then a situation where that takes place and there's no remorse, there's no repentance, there's no admission of that fault, then there's trouble. And it's the same with God. Listen to this in James 4, verse 11. James says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. You're, you're speaking against God's righteous law that has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And if you've got a brother and a sister who is in Christ Jesus, you are then judging them as if you're above that law. You are elevating yourself and saying, well, listen, I know better. I'm, I'm fulfilling the law better than this person but you're slandering them or you're gossiping about them about something that even might be halfway true. But if it's done for that purpose to discredit that person or make them uh, be untrustworthy, then we're in trouble. Then we're in sin. And that happens. And that has happened at the Rock Church. That has happened here in the last number of years at the Rock Church, where we have been publicly slandered on social media by people that were with us. It's something that needs to be said, because there are some people that, via hearsay, hear different variations of stories, events that took place, taken out of context. But the slandering happens then in such a way on public media, through social media, that we as a church, we're not able to actually give an answer to that. And our response has been to not repay evil with evil. To let God be at work through this to reveal actually what is going on. But the question is, how are we supposed to deal with something like this? 
I'm going to point you to a couple of scriptures that show us the severity and the uh, importance of understanding how serious this is and not to be involved with something like this. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 11. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. They have a specific situation. There is, a, there is sexual immorality that's taking place in that church. There is a person, there is a man who is having an affair with his stepmother. So it's a case of incest. But the church is not dealing with it. They are not disciplining this person. They are just letting it carry on. And Paul says, listen, you are in the wrong. You need to deal with this. Put this person out of your fellowship. Okay? And then he writes about this issue. He says there, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says this. He says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. He says to the church, listen, if you want to escape immorality, you're going to have to colonize Mars with Elon Musk. You cannot. Like the reality is you're going to be in the workplace. You're going to be in, a, in, a, in an area, yes, where people are immoral because they do not have God's law with them. They do not believe in Jesus. They don't know any better. So don't go and try and judge them. But listen to what he says about those that call themselves Christians. He says, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. It sounds very harsh, doesn't it? It sounds extremely harsh. But you know what? I practice this in my house with my kids. I give them timeouts if there's no repentance. If they are lying, if there is something that happens, there is a consequence. There are steps that I take. There is a timeout. There is a chance for them to repent. I put them out of my fellowship and, and being around us when we're at the dinner table as a result of their behavior so that I can encourage them to repent and to have real remorse. There is a purpose behind these steps. And it is to help whoever that person is that is unrepentant to come to their senses, that God will be at work in this time, that they will experience the challenge of being out of fellowship. And it is important for us as a church going forward in this season to really make up our minds about this and to realize this, that you're not doing yourself any good by trying to still hang out with people that persist in unrepentant sin. That persist in their attitude towards the church. Not just the rock church, but to the church as a whole. You need to make a decision. The, the line is drawn in the sand in these days that we're living in. We are literally living in the last days. I know the church has said that for 2,000 years, but I believe this is now every day. These, these are the last days. I can, really, I cannot see civilization carrying on for another 1,000 years. <laughs> if, if for another 1,000 years, then I know okay, I'm with Jesus. I'm not going to live another 1,000 years. But listen, I'm, I'm seriously just I'm saying this because it is something that is still around. It is in this community, there's still... 
these kinds of things hanging around in the cyberspace. Many of us that are not even involved with social media, you might not be aware of it. I'm not on social media the whole time, but now and then it pops up. I'm sharing this as someone who's casting a vision here for the Ledge Community uh, Cafe and, and what we're going to do out of here. We need to prepare ourselves that not everyone is going to be, you know, over-jubilant that we're opening. There's, uh, I believe the majority of this community is looking forward for this space to be reopened again. But unfortunately, unless there's repentance that happens with certain people, we're still going to see this thing carry on. And I'm sharing this with you as one of the elders and, and leaders of this church who love you. I'm communicating this to you so that we are more aware of it and that we will do the right thing. Okay. Uh, Next slide, I want to share this again also in regard to this, what we're supposed to do. Uh, Paul used this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about who you're hanging out with. And he was specifically in that chapter talking about people that were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Denying very important doctrines, the most fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. And people that were hanging out with him, he was quoting a, a Greek poet that said this, bad company corrupts good character. You know, you might say, well, hold on, Jesus hung out with sinners and he ate and he drank with them. Well, listen, Jesus was Jesus. We're not Jesus, okay? And he, he did that. He didn't approve of their lifestyles. He did that and he called out sin and he called people to repentance. So we as Christians, we need to be careful because we... We sometimes take the stance. We say, okay, yeah, I, I got to hang out a, a lot with these unbelievers. How else are they going to come to know Jesus? Well, you got to watch out because if they are more than, than you, if unbelievers are more than you, do not underestimate the power of their influence. And then also, if you choose to then hang, hang out with folks who call themselves brothers and sisters, but they are denying the most fundamental truths of the gospel, then you're also looking for trouble. Okay. The question is, what are we supposed to do? We have preached on this many times. I'm going to quickly go over this. Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, if you are in the church, again, if your brother or sister sins against you or you see sin, Jesus gives us this instruction. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So step one. You and your fellow brother and sister, you have wronged me, you have sinned against me, or you have sinned against that person. I'm calling you out on it. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So they repent. They ask forgiveness. Okay? Jesus said, how many times should you forgive your brother and sister? 77 times. So in other words, to infinity. That's the challenge. That's the, the calling. If they do not listen, take one or two others along. So are there witnesses? Are there people that agree with you in what you have experienced? Was this sinful? And then go speak to that person so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then, listen to this. This is where Paul gets it from the, to have someone put out of fellowship. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, so meaning fellow believers, but also leaders that have a, um, authority over over you, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. How did the Jews treat those people? How did they treat pagans or Gentiles and tax collectors? They did not associate with them. 
That was Jesus Christ saying that. That's the procedure. Why? So that that person will come to repentance, come to their senses. Okay? That is the procedure. You might sit here and you say, okay, but Rudy, and this is important to say too, because we live in such a day and age, there are so many um, things being brought to light. I believe we're living in the time of the apocalypse. We think if someone says apocalypse, it's like, ooh, meteors hitting the earth and run for it. It's left behind the rapture. No, apocalypse means the revealing. Okay? Through this pandemic, Many evil things are being brought to light and even many evil things within the global church. Scandals happening, right? But those things are brought to light and you might say, but Rudy, how? what if I have an issue with you as an elder? I feel powerless. You hide behind institutional power. Well, no, listen, the scripture gives us indication what you need to do. If you have an issue with a pastor or an elder, this is what... 1 Timothy 5, verse 19 to 20 says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder, he's telling Timothy, unless it is brought to you by two or three witnesses. Do you have the freedom to, of course, approach any leader with an issue? Yes. Go back to Matthew 18, one-on-one. If they do not listen, go to another elder, go to another leader. Find a witness that agrees with you that, listen, what's happened is a problem. But listen what Paul says further there. He says, those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Why am I saying this? Is because, yes, elders, leaders are all held to the same standards. If one of the elders, if someone is in sin, then Paul instructs, listen, they need to be reproved. They need to be shown in the church that, hey, people are safe. Just because you're a leader doesn't mean that you can... You think you're above the law. Okay. I just had to say that this morning because I think it's, it's very important for uh, the church to, uh, as we go forward, we need to be transparent and open and honest and make it clear to people what are the procedures to follow if there are issues. Okay. And here's the good news. And this is not the end of the message. I'm sorry. This, I, I should have warned you. This is a heavy one. It can go a little bit longer. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, verse 31. This is the great news. Slander is not the unforgivable sin. Because I feel like many times we also react in such a way that we think it's the unforgivable sin. Jesus says, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So we need to remember that as fellow brothers and sisters. Yes, we stay in prayer for people that, are, uh, that have left, that have chosen to separate themselves or put themselves out of the church by their own choice. We pray for them. We pray for anyone who, who even gets to that point where they're asked to leave. Just to say this, no one at the Rock Church has ever been asked to leave the Rock Church. We have always dealt gracefully with people who are struggling with sin issues. But there's always opportunity for people to turn back. Okay. Everyone with me? Okay, now we can move on. All right, everyone is really looking somber now. Okay, don't worry, it's going to turn out okay here at the end. We're all going to be all right. Uh, Verse 4. The one who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. We have a calling to be salt and light 
in a world that is decaying. But many times in the church, we also hear the slogan, listen, hate the sin, love the sinner. And I would say, for the majority of the time, yes, that is what we want to do. We want to love people and point them towards Jesus Christ for the goodness of the gospel that there is forgiveness of sins. But listen, if you have got a society, if you've got things that happen in our culture where we are living in now today, what the prophet Isaiah says is, woe to us if we say good is evil and evil is good. We are living in such times where vile things are taking place in in our society. And unless there is an acknowledgement of that this is vile and that people persist in it and they say that what they're doing is good, you as a Christian cannot say that, okay, yeah, I, I just keep on loving you. I love you as a person. When that person's intention is the whole time to be evil. There is a point in time where you, you just need to call it for what it is. You need to despise a vile person, someone. It doesn't mean the love of God is never available or the grace of God is not available for that person. No, but it's, it's a point where you're like, I cannot trust this person. This is a vile person as a result of what is happening, as a result of what's being said or taught or done. There's lots of those things happening in our culture. Uh, the approval of sin publicly, pridefully. And it comes at the expense of innocent people, our children. So we need to really be bold in our faith here. And what this verse is talking about is, if, if you are despising what is vile in culture, honor then the people of God. Honor those who fear the Lord. Honor the church. Come together with the church. And stick to your commitment To Jesus Christ. Because giving your life to Jesus is an oath. That is a commitment you make. And we do not change our minds on that. But you see, we live in such a a day and age where everything has become casual. Relationships have become casual. Instead of it being formalized through marriage as instituted by God, we cohabitate. Friends with benefits. It's easier I can leave whenever I want. Friendship vows. Like, we are scared to make friendship vows these days, to commit in a friendship in the similar way that David and Jonathan committed to one another. Community vows or promises. We are not just cohabitating in in relationships with one another, but also with the church. People... And I'm going to offend some people here, but people that persist in saying, I'm not willing to be a member of a church, but you mainly just get the benefits of fellowship, the benefits of worship, the benefits of people helping you, the benefits of being in a community, but you're not willing to place yourself under authority and being accountable. You're in the end cohabitating with the church because it becomes easy for you to then just back up and go when things get tough. I've been there and I know how that works. You might say this is a harsh word. I'm telling you it is the truth. It is, it is a hard word, but it is the truth. And we need to make a decision as the church. And I want to suggest that if there is a, an issue with us horizontally to make commitments 
to one another as brothers and sisters in our community groups and in church and in our relationships, there is an issue vertically. There's something that needs to be resolved between us and God. Because if that's right with God, it will be right with His people. Matthew 5 verse 37, Jesus says, all we need to say is yes or no. Anything more from that, uh, of that is of the evil one. Listen, we, we unfortunately have to make commitments in life. You orchestrate, you build a life around commitments. And what that verse is really calling us to is really, I, I want us to hear that. Honor those who fear the Lord. We need to make that our top priority in our lives, that we want to honor God's people. We want to be on mission with God's people. And then lastly, I just love this how, and it really hit home for me this week, how David ties it in with your wallet. You want to experience God's presence. You want to experience His goodness. And if you truly are, it's not that you have to spend money to do it, but His presence and His love and His grace changes you that you go from having hands that are closed in this way about money that it opens up that it's this verse, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent, whoever does these things will never be shaken. Listen, what David is saying is God's people, those who fear God and who want to experience God's presence, what will be the outcome of that is your hands will be open towards the poor, the needy. You will help those who are marginalized, but you will also not accept a bribe on behalf of the innocent. You might say, what on earth is that? I've never accepted a bribe for anything. I'm telling you, I've accepted a bribe on behalf of the innocent in this way. By believing the lie instead of the truth. By not being accountable. By spending money that I was not accountable to my wife for and it came at the expense of my family. Where I was negligent. Where I fell into sin. In my opinion, that is taking a bribe. I believe that bribe of like the lie, well, you can take this money, Rudy, and you can invest it in this kind of way and you can quickly make a quick buck here in order that you, you might be able to provide for your family. But it spilled over into becoming... Addictive, if I'm honest. I believe we're taking bribes at the cost of the innocent when we make choices that is at the cost of anyone else that's specifically part of the church too. When we make easy choices that involve comfort, time, and recreation above being with God's people and being on God's mission. That's when we take a bribe from the enemy who says, listen, it's okay. You can do this. This is not going to impact the church. But then it actually does. And so there is a very close connection to our wallets. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And where your heart is, there your treasure will be. If, if your heart is with Jesus, if your heart is in heaven, your treasure will be there. Second Corinthians 9 verse 7, Paul says this, 
All of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The overall thought there is about lending without interest, it's being generous. I love being generous. My wife and I love being generous with our house. We love being generous with what God has given us. Because we feel like that is from God. That is, He has blessed us with what we have in order that we may welcome, that we may be hospitable, that we may further the kingdom through those means. Do we do it perfectly? No. But that is something that I feel like, again, that we need to remember that He is calling us to. In conclusion here, I want to take us back to verse 2. If you're feeling heavy-hearted and you listen to all of this and you, you're, you're like me and you're able to say, listen, I fall short of all of, not all of those things, but many of those things. I want you to listen to verse 2. It says, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. Two weeks ago, Glenn did the same thing with Psalm 1. He brought it back to there's only one. There's only one man that were, what, has a delight in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. There's only one whose walk is blameless but was blameless, who did what is righteous, who spoke the truth, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it's only as a result of the fact that Jesus did that for us, that he went before us, that... We can look at the psalm and actually read and say, okay, but hold on, I fall short, God, of your glory. I fall short of these things. What now? Well, there is the good news. Jesus did it for you. So that you don't have to do this, but listen, that you want to do it and you get to do it. In other words, this psalm is what it looks like to mirror Jesus. And that when you fall, when you do sin and you fall short of God's glory, you go back and you say, verse 2, no, hold on, there's one that did it. Romans 8 verse 1 says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. So if you fall and you stumble and you confess your sins, you confess your sins to your fellow brothers and sisters, you then remember the scripture that, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is he? He is this one. He has walked blamelessly, righteously. He spoke the truth from his heart. Now I can live by Spirit in that fashion, in that way. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says this, For by one sacrifice He, that's God, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Through Jesus Christ being the one, the final atoning sacrifice, the high priest that has forever done it once for all, you don't have to do it. And you have been made perfect. The first verse says, only, or sorry, verse 2 says, blamelessness. You need perfection in order to experience God's presence. Listen, you can only have that when the perfect sacrifice was made for you. That is Jesus. This is the good news. And I can see on your faces, you're, you're thinking about this. But listen, this is good news. You can smile and be like happy. You're like, I'm so glad Rudy is bringing it to something that sounds great. But this is really, truly uh, freedom. It sets you free, first and foremost, if you think that you're good enough and you're a good Christian. You, you're doing the good things. God must be pleased. No, it sets you free from that. You're not good enough. Jesus is good enough. 
Get His righteousness. It sets you free if you're not a Christian yet. It means you can be included into God's family. And listen, this is the ultimate and best news of it all before the worship band come up. It is the present of His presence. In the beginning, I told you how presently when my, not presently, 2006, when my wife, my, my girlfriend at that stage came and she, she brought me the present of her presence into my life. It changed my life in, to such an ex- extent that I said, I'm going to marry her. I'm going to go back to South Africa. I've got my mind made up. I'm going to marry her. So I did it. Jesus came in the flesh to give us the present of his presence. By having faith in him, he has deposited then in you, now his spirit, that is his presence within you. Amen. <laughs> hey, George. Hey, that is good news. So let us think about that and, and consider what Jesus has done for us to make us perfect and in position with him. And now wants to grow us in holiness as we walk and reflect his glory all the more on this earth as his church. So I'm going to call the worship band up here before we take communion. I apologize. I went over. Um, But I, I felt like I need to repent. Thanks, George. So, but let us consider Jesus, what he has done for us. He has entered that holy place behind the curtain. He, he is currently in the heavenly realms. He's interceding for us. He's at the right hand of the Father. He has called us to be now his, his children, but co-laborers, his heirs. That is the identity he's calling us into. So if, if you want to take part in that, if you have no share in that yet, I'm going to encourage you to pray this morning as we're going to take communion, this is your opportunity to experience God's presence today. So let us just pray before I call uh, Joey up to, to lead us in communion. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your truth. We thank you that we can stand on your truth. And Lord, thank you that we can not only hear your truth, but that we can experience it through your spirit that gives us just a guarantee of your love and your grace towards us. Uh, Lord, we come, we just ask forgiveness for our sins. We ask forgiveness for where we have wronged you, we have wronged our neighbors, our fellow brothers and sisters. We ask forgiveness, we repent. And we ask, come and help us fan into flame this present you have given us, your spirit, your presence within us. And so we we ask that, I, I ask that you will be at work in the hearts of those that do not know you yet and have not experienced your presence. Lord, that you will do a mighty work in them. I pray for those of us that are entangled and currently struggling with sin. Lord, come and release us. Come and set us free. Come and help us to, to trust you for the work you have done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.